If you have your Bible, let me go ahead and invite you to turn to Matthew 5. That's where we're going to be, Matthew 5, 27. And I want to tell you where we're going. The passage that we're looking at today, Jesus talks about sex and sexual desire. And so some of you, you know, maybe you have your your kids watching with you. You're here in the room or you're online. I want to let you know that's the subject And we tried to give you a little heads up in the weekly email before you got here, but it's very possible that you didn't read that, and and I just want to let you know that's where we're going. And I also know that we have guests here today, and for all of those people, they're probably thinking, Welp, I wish I would have picked a different Sunday to come. And I would just tell you, in God's providence, you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm really looking forward to what God has for us today. Now, why is sexuality difficult to talk about? Because when I even introduce it, and I say that's what the text is about, there are many people, my guess is, that that immediately felt some level of discomfort. Why is that? Well, one reason is we just don't talk about it that often. We are constantly exposed to sexual images and sexual content in our culture today, but we just don't talk about it. Some families never talk about it. Another reason why this is uncomfortable is because this topic is a source of great grief and shame for many people. Some people listening today, some of the deepest wounds that you've experienced are connected to this whole subject of sexuality. Another reason why this is hard to talk about is the Bible's teaching on this area is so radically countercultural to our cultural moment that we're in. And this passage in particular that we're going to look at in Matthew 5, it's, it's even more difficult because Jesus addresses this topic in a way that makes pretty much all of us culpable. Very few of us will get out of here unscathed today. But what I want you to hear today is that Jesus, through this teaching we're going to look at, he's not wanting to leave us broken down on the side of the road. He's actually wanting to heal us and to help us thrive. And it may not feel like that, but that's what Jesus is after like a surgeon who's cutting into someone. If, if, if we have ears to hear today, I think Jesus is going to operate on us. But it's not to damage us. Again, it's to heal us and to help us flourish and thrive. And this brings me to, to another important point I want to make before we dive into the text. Jesus' words in this passage are for disciples. They're for men and women who are striving to follow Jesus. These are not aimed at, these words are not aimed at people who don't believe in Jesus. And I think we misstep when we make the Bible's teachings on this topic a front door for people into the Christian faith. Jesus didn't. I mean, think for a moment about who Jesus spent time with. A lot of it was with people who were sexually broken So if you're here and you're not a believer, 
or you're unsure where you stand with God, I'm so glad that you're here. And just know that these words are not primarily for you. Now, I do hope that you lean in and that you listen because I think what you'll hear today is Jesus' heart for sexuality, but more important than that, I think you'll hear Jesus' heart for people. So we're gonna go ahead and jump in at verse 27. Jesus, he doesn't mince words. He goes right to the heart of the issue. Look, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus is quoting one of the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. His audience that day would have been familiar with that commandment. Now, what is adultery? Well, in the view of the Old Testament, adultery is sex between someone who is married and anyone else that they are not married to. And the penalty of committing adultery in the Old Testament was being stoned to death. And because of that, this was not a common occurrence. And I say that to help us understand when Jesus said these words, he is speaking to people who, for the most part, thought, check, don't commit adultery, done. Hadn't done that. But Jesus presses the command deeper. Look at what he says. He says, but I tell you, so you've heard it said don't commit adultery, I tell you, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I want to draw your attention to two words in this verse. The first is the word looks. Our English word looks has a whole range of meaning. We might mean you look at the weather, you know, you glance at something, or you look intently at something for a long time. The, the Greek word here for looks, it implies purpose. You're looking for a specific purpose. And what's the purpose? Well, Jesus says it's lust. So what is this talking about? Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, this is looking at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is not noticing that someone is attractive. There's lots of beautiful people in the world. I love what Martin Luther said of this verse, and it, and it helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Luther, he said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You get the idea? This is a settled gaze to fuel sexual desire, and you know what I'm talking about. Because for many of you in the room today, you've engaged in this behavior, you know. And, and, and there's others in the room, maybe many of you in the room, you have been a victim of this stare. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what Jesus is talking about. Now the second word I wanna direct your attention to is the word heart. Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we tend to associate thoughts with the mind and emotions and desires with the heart. But in the Hebrew worldview, which Jesus was brought up in, the Hebrew understanding, the heart was the source of thoughts, emotions, and your will. All of that's captured in the Hebrew concept of the heart. It was, it was like the control center for your life. 
Last week we talked about the image of an iceberg that what we see, when we look at an iceberg, we see the part that's above the waterline, but 90% of an iceberg is below the surface of the water. And similarly, when people look at you and I, what they see is our behavior. But the vast majority of our personhood, it's, it's below the waterline. People don't see it. Our intentions, desires, feeling, and thoughts All of that is captured by this idea of the heart. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, when you and I participate in what he's saying here, when we engage, when we look at a woman, at a person to fuel sexual desire, we've already committed adultery here in the very center of our being. Now, Maybe you hear Jesus saying this, and the first question that comes to your mind is, if you're honest, what's the big deal with that? Truly, I, Jesus, I'm not hurting anyone. It's my body, first of all, and my mind, my, my heart, that's even more private. So what's the big deal? And the fact that Jesus makes this such a big deal kind of makes him seem prudish and repressive, so what's the, what's the big deal, Jesus? Well, to Jesus, it is a big deal. And if we're gonna understand why, I think we need to understand Jesus' perspective on two things, on sex and on people. So first, just quickly, kind of a, a biblical theology of sex. Three points I wanna make. First of all, according to the Bible, sex is good. Sex is good in Genesis 2 God creates humans in his image, male and female, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have sex and have lots of kids. And this is before the fall. This is before sin entered in the world. So we, humanity, we were sexual before we were sinful. Sex is God's idea. And sex is good. And it's important for us to get this because we can develop a view, and some Christians have, we, we can develop a view that, that God sees sex as bad or dirty, but that is a distortion of what the Bible says. Tim Keller, he points out that the, the Bible begins with a naked man reciting a love poem to a naked woman in the presence of God. That's how it starts, right? There's a whole book of the Bible celebrating sexual desire. It's called the Song of Solomon. And people over the years have tried to make it about other things. Oh, this is Jesus in the church. It's not. It's about sexual desire. So the Bible doesn't shy away from saying that sex is good. But what the Bible also says is that sex is not essential to a good life. And you talk about countercultural. Christianity is the very first religion in history that, that said that a long term, single approach to life, if you were single forever, that that was a meaningful and legitimate way to live. Nobody thought that way, but Christianity, the first century, said, no, 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 being single is a meaningful, legitimate way to live. And according to the Bible's vision, that means a life without sex. And again, this, this is so countercultural. To hear the Bible 
say you don't need to get married and have sex to have a meaningful life is crazy. That's crazy, isn't it? And maybe it's even more crazy for us in the church because what we've done, I think Christians in general, right below sex, we've elevated marriage as the path to a fulfilled life. But the New Testament does not share that view. Primary case in point, Jesus. Jesus did not get married. Do we really believe that Jesus did not have a meaningful life? And we set ourselves up for such profound disillusionment when we believe get married and have sex and it'll fulfill all your longings. It won't. And all the married people are thinking, amen. The Bible says sex is good. Sex is not essential to a good life. And then thirdly, sex has the capacity to do great damage. And this is why in the Bible, sex is compared to a fire. In the book of Proverbs, a fire is good. A fire is also very dangerous. And the Bible says it about sex. Now, our culture rejects this idea because the spirit of our age that we live in says sex is essentially a biological appetite. This is kind of the underlying philosophy that we're exposed to on a daily basis. That as long as there's consent, you're not harming anyone. It's like a biological appetite. But is that true? Think with me, is that true? Listen, if sex is just a physical appetite, like hunger or sleep, then why are many of people's deepest regrets sexual in nature? I mean, think about it. If sex, again, if it's just physical, then why is this true? That for many people, their deepest regrets are sexual in nature. If sex is just a physical appetite, why is abuse in this area so tragic? Why is it so devastating? Because if, if, if sex is just a physical appetite, then abuse in this area is just like abuse in any other area physically. But it's not and we know it. And then if sex is just a physical appetite, then why are sexual addictions so enslaving? Why? If it's just a physical appetite, like, you know, I need sleep, well then, when I, when I meet that need, then I won't be sleepy anymore. I won't be hungry anymore. But, but anybody who has dealt with sexual addiction will tell you it does not work that way. That the more it's fed, the stronger the craving can become. Why is that? It's because sex is not just physical. It has a, clearly, it has a physical component. But deep down, I think we know this. And this is why, according to the Bible, according to Scripture, sexual desire needs a context strong enough to hold it, to protect it, and that's what marriage is. Now, the, the idea of sex belonging inside marriage is a joke today. It's literally, it's a joke. That kind of idea is viewed to be unrealistic at best, really narrow and naive 
at worst. But is it possible, let me just ask you and just encourage you, because maybe internally you're pushing back. Listen, is it possible that we, in our culture today, that we are the ones who've got it wrong? Is it possible? You know, studies show that ever since the sexual revolution in the 1960s, which separated sex from marriage, that was kind of the whole point, rates of divorce in America have skyrocketed. Interestingly, happiness levels in America, according to the GFK National Opinion Poll, have been in decline ever since when? The 1950s. Articles from the past few years from the Population Reference Bureau, the Institute for Family Studies, and the Pew Research Center show that cohabitation before marriage leads to, on average, fewer marriages, more divorces, and those who do live together before they're married are more likely to develop long-term trust issues. Pornography is now considered an epidemic in the West. More than 40 million Americans regularly visit pornographic websites. It's, it's literally become a multi-billion dollar industry. And rate, rates of sexual abuse and sexual assault are getting worse, not better, with all that we know and with how enlightened we are. One out of every four women today will experience sexual violence at some point in their lives. John Mark Comer, he, he rightly says, he says, the sexual liberation is starting to look more and more like enslavement. So, again, is it possible that we got it wrong? I mean, look around. How's it working for us? Is it possible that instead of being narrow or repressive, that Jesus is actually right and that sex is, is good but it's dangerous and it needs a context, again, for us to be able to, to thrive and flourish. And this leads to Jesus' view of people, okay? So I told you how Jesus viewed sex. Listen, the reason why this area is such a big deal, and it is to Jesus, the reason why is because the damage we're talking about is damage to people, who are made in his image and precious to him. People are sacred. We're not gonna get the Sermon on the Mount if we don't understand this, that the people are not objects. And what is happening with adultery in the heart? What is happening with the stare? What's happening is we are depersonalizing and objectifying a person. We are diminishing their humanity and using them, using even just parts of them to satisfy our own cravings. And this is why Jesus is worked up about this. It's not because he's on his moral high horse. He knows this is devastating. And it's a violation of our humanity that we dehumanize ourselves and other people when we engage in this. And Tim Mackey, he, he pointed out as I studied this that which gender does Jesus have in mind when he says this? Because he has one. If you look at the pronouns, when Jesus says this, who does he have in mind? Who's he aiming at? It's men, primarily. Now, does that mean that, that women cannot engage in adultery in the heart? No, we, we all need to hear, both genders need to hear the warning 
that Jesus gives. But throughout human civilization, which gender has exploited the other more when it comes to sexuality? Men, and it's not close. And this was true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day today. And Jesus is ticked. Again, it's because he loves people. He loves you. He loves me. So zoom out with me, okay? When we hear what Jesus says about sex, we want to push back again because we're children of our culture. Don't tell me that our culture's view on sexuality has not influenced us and how we think. And we want to say, why does Jesus care? Again, it's my body and it's my mind. And what I want you to hear today is that ultimately Jesus cares because he cares about you. And he cares about the people that you hurt and objectify when you engage in this, when we engage. And because this is so serious in Jesus' mind, he says what he does in the next two verses. Look with me, Jesus. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Woof. What if I just closed right here and said, amen, let's leave. How in the world... Do you interpret what Jesus says here? Jesus does not mean this literally. He's not telling us today, go maim yourself if you struggle with sexual sin. Why do we know that? Because the problem isn't your eye, and the problem isn't your hand, it's deeper. The problem's your heart. Removing your eye doesn't get deep enough. If you take out your right eye, you'll just look with your left. And if the, if the goal, Jesus' goal, is to eliminate the possibility of sexual sin by removing body parts, then he's leaving something out. And I'm not trying to be graphic. I'm trying to make a point, which is the problem is not just physical. So the solution is not just physical either. Another reason why we know this was not meant literally is because none of the original hearers did it. They weren't stumbling around with eye patches and missing arms. We have no record of the disciples maiming themselves in response to what Jesus said. So what is Jesus actually saying? Because he's saying something really strongly. Well, I think the, the key to understanding it is to look at the phrase that he repeats twice. Jesus, he says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The the word for hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna. And and it, it was an actual physical place. It was a garbage dump on the south side of Jerusalem where rubbish was continually dumped and burned. It would have smelled. It would have reeked. It was an image of ruin. And that's what would have been in the minds of the people who heard Jesus say this. What Jesus is saying is that when we engage in sexual sin, 
we are putting ourselves on a path to absolute ruin. He is saying that this will destroy you and people you love. Now, the dangerously deceptive thing about sexual sin, and the reason why some of us want to just dismiss this altogether, is because we don't see that. That doesn't seem true. Again, as long as there's consent, I'm not harming anybody. Jesus, that sure doesn't seem destructive. feels fine. There's a novel by Oscar Wilde called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's about a young man named Dorian Gray. There's a portrait painted of him by his friend Basil. And in the, in the novel, Dorian Gray wishes that the portrait would grow old instead of himself. And he gets his wish. And Dorian Gray, he, for the next two de- decades, he makes immoral choice after immoral choice, pursuing pleasure, living a hedonistic lifestyle. And he, he's not aging, he seems fine, but this portrait of himself is growing older and more weathered and worn and even cruel. And at the end of his life, Dorian Gray, he comes face to face with the painting. And he sees himself. And he's overwhelmed with guilt, with shame, with contempt. And he takes a knife and he stabs the painting only to feel the pain of the blade in his own heart. And he collapses on the floor. And the point is that he was the person in the painting the whole time. He just didn't know it. And that the choices he was making had a damaging effect, but he was shielded from seeing it. Listen, that's an apt picture of what Jesus is saying, that that there's an unseen spiritual dimension to your life and my life that we plunge into ruin when we engage in this. So in light of that, look back at verse 29. This is the command. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. What's he saying? Well, the right eye was viewed as the most important of the two. And the right hand the same way. If you were a warrior in the first century and you were missing your right eye, it was written about that you were at a big disadvantage, a major disadvantage. But Jesus says, it is better, literally, he says, it is to your advantage, that's what that that word means, for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell, to to be destroyed. Jesus is saying that in light of what sexual sin will cost you, there is no price too high to avoid it. It's worth, according to Jesus, it is worth losing the most valuable thing you own. Do whatever it takes. Lloyd Shadrach sums up well what Jesus is saying, I think, in this verse when he says that sexual sin is so devastating to your heart. Spare nothing to eliminate any and all paths that might lead you to this sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, how are you doing? This is a heavy topic, and I know, and I even felt emotional this week prepared, because I know many of the stories in the room today. Where does this take us? I want to give you three statements as we try to apply this to our lives, and you need to hear all three. And some of you are going to be more drawn to one or two, but, but you need to hear all three. 
And the first thing we need to take from this passage is that we are all sexually broken. In this area, we tend to get fixated on certain types of sexual sin. And we think, and we might say out loud, good thing I don't struggle with that. But that is exactly what Jesus' audience thought when he said, don't commit adultery. And again, the point to them and to us is that true righteousness, what God really wants, is much deeper. It's not just about not committing adultery physically. Again, think of the iceberg. And how many of us today, how many can say, that in my intentions and my desires and my feelings and my thoughts, that all of that aligns perfectly with what Jesus is calling us to in this area. That in our approach to sexuality, there's no selfishness, there's no force, there's no manipulation or lust. We are all sexually broken. None of us get out of here unscathed. And then secondly, and this is so important, we hear this connected to it, Jesus loves sexually broken people. I I want you to hear this. Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus loves you. Let me say that again. And again, I know some of the stories in the room. Jesus doesn't hate you. He loves you. There is so much shame around this over what we've done, over what's been done to us, over our bodies. And some of you feel covered in shame today. The good news is that the Bible is filled with people who are sexually broken in all kinds of ways. Literally, the Bible is full of them. It's not sanitized of their stories. And what we see in the Bible over and over again is a God who loves people who are broken, and meets them right where they are. John chapter 8, Jesus is is teaching, and, and the Pharisees bring before him a woman caught in adultery. And the text specifically says that Jesus turned toward her and looked at her. He did not look away. And Jesus, he says to this woman, most vulnerable point in her entire life, she's exposed, he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And the order is significant. Jesus does not say to her, go and sin no more. And then your sins will be forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven right now. Go and sin no more. John chapter four, Jesus, he's talking with a serial adulterer. And she's living with a man she's not married to. And when Jesus talks to this woman, he does not back away He does not shame her. He doesn't even tell her to kick the guy out. What does he do? He goes to the heart of the issue. And he says to her, he says, what you're looking for, the living water that your soul is so thirsty for, you're only gonna find in a relationship with me. And he invites her to experience life in himself before she cleans up everything. Listen, what does Jesus want to say to you in the midst of your sexual brokenness today? And if you you don't hear anything else today, what does Jesus say to you? Jesus says, I love you. 
And I didn't flinch when you made that mistake that you made years ago, that I'm, I'm not even contemplating walking away from you in light of your struggle right now. I love you. And the amazing thing about the love of God that we will spend our lifetime learning, we'll never fully get this, okay? God never adjusts his love to your conduct, ever. It doesn't matter what you've done. Do you know that today? Do you know that that God loves you deeply? Believe it. Embrace it. Live like it's true because it is. Jesus loves sexually broken people. And then finally, listen, submitting your sexual brokenness to Jesus is worth whatever it takes. These verses in the Sermon on the Mount, they're not saying to cut off your hand, but they are saying to take drastic measures to follow Jesus with this part of your life. I'm convinced, studying the text this week, listen, there's no way to get around it. Jesus is saying, take drastic measures to follow me with this part of your life. Some of you today, you need to get a stupid phone, not a smartphone. And I'm serious, and, and people are gonna think it's ridiculous, and you, you're gonna feel insecure about how, it's, how you're perceived, but it's worth it. Because you're trying to tell yourself, you can manage what's going on, you can't manage it. You know, for, for some today, for maybe for most of us today, the, the next step we need to take is to confess to someone exactly what's going on, not just the behavior, but underneath the iceberg to tell another human being. And, and for many of you, the, the impulse rising up in your heart is, no, no way. That is the last thing I wanna do. And I would just gently, but, but, but as strongly as I can say to you, that is the way to freedom. And I would argue, you will not be free until you are willing to bring what's going on into the light. Yes, with God, but with someone else. And not everyone, but tell someone. And maybe, to, maybe today you, you call someone, you say, I just need to talk to you. And you tell. For, for others of you, the next step you, you might need to take is to come to regeneration, which meets every Monday night here at GFC. It's a 12-step program, Christ-centered recovery. And here's what I've learned and I'm, I'm learning. We're all in recovery, all of us. Mentor in my life said to me this past week, we were talking about an area that I have struggled with, and he said, do you still see yourself in recovery? And I was like, dang it. I don't think I do. And and what he was getting at and what I needed to hear was, Matt, you're still in recovery. We all are. And for you, maybe a next step is you just come tomorrow, Monday night, 6.30, you just explore it. So what would it look like for you? And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, again, there is no problem with you not doing any of this stuff. But if you are, then Jesus is saying to you today, do whatever it takes. And it's not because he wants to make you miserable. It's because he loves you and he wants freedom and peace for you. What would that look like for you? And the order, by the way, of these three statements is intentional. 
Listen, if you leave today committed to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus, but you're not convinced he loves you, you'll be crushed when you fall short, and you will. And you won't be able to sustain any long-term change. Why? Because what's motivating you is fear. It's not love. There is no fear in love. And I'm convinced it is only by embracing the love of God that we will ever have the resources to follow Jesus, to trust him in this area. And maybe you're here today and you're wondering, well, how do I know? How can I know? Because again, when, when we're struggling in this area, maybe like un, unlike anything, we begin to see ourselves as unlovable in God's eyes. And so you say, how can I know that Jesus loves me? Because before you ever had a lustful thought, before you were ever even born, Jesus died for you. For you. And in Rich Velotas, he says that when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam and Eve, third page of the Bible, they hid behind a tree naked and covered in shame. But Jesus, in his death on the cross, Jesus, he hung on a tree naked and conquered shame. You see, the reason that you don't have to hide in your sin covered in shame is because Jesus died for your sin and took your shame. And listen, in our sexual brokenness, all of us want to do what Adam and Eve did. Every, every single one of us, we want to run and hide. But you need, we need to hear this today. Listen, the story of the Bible is the story of God running after broken people like us. Just like us. And doing whatever it takes. Listen, he laid down his life so that we could be forgiven and brought into his family forever. Oh, how, oh, how he loves us. Let's run to him today. Father, we, we come to you and Lord, we're just so, I'm so grateful in this moment that in view of our struggles, our ongoing inability to, to follow you, Jesus, in this part of our lives, God, that you don't run away that you love us and you meet us right where we are. And Lord, I just pray, God, for all of us today, we, we would see you that way as the God who meets us in the midst of our brokenness. Help us to believe, God, you don't adjust your love to our conduct. Lord, would you give us the courage? Those in the room that, who, who want to follow you, give us the courage, God, to know what does it look like to take a step in obedience and in trust, Lord, even if we don't see it, but to trust that what Jesus has said, that the way of Jesus is right and good and comes from a loving heart. God, help us. So God, we respond to you now. We run to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.